there's a lot of podcasts and, and uh, blogs out there that talk about how to raise private capital. No one really tells you how to redeploy that, how to manage that cash, um, that cash flow or the cash drag in some cases too. Let's get ready to scale. guys, thanks for joining us for yet another episode. Before we dive in today, I do want to say that this episode is sponsored. So for those of you that are land flippers and land investors, this episode is being sponsored by Priced, which is a robust web application that revolutionizes your real estate marketing campaigns. Price can actually help you streamline uh, all of the property and owner data research, provide analysis for over 2 million comms, and even lets you download property owner records directly from their platform. Here's the cherry on top two. Priced can even add market valuations and tailored offer prices to each property for your next campaign. So if you want to spend less time on tedious tasks and more time on making informed decisions, make sure you check out Priced.com. That's P-R-Y-C-D.com. Remember, with Priced, it's not just about pricing. It's about growth and efficiency for your business. Now, moving on, joining me today is Beth Pinkley Johnson. Beth is the managing partner of Flynn Family Lending, which focuses on private money lending. She's also the founder and managing partner of Lind to Live Management, overseeing a private debt fund. She also is a member of the Education Committee for the American Association of Private Lenders. And prior to getting into all of this, uh, Beth had various roles throughout her career, actually starting as a printing coordinator at Home Depot many moons ago, and then moving into management and training with T-Mobile for about a decade, and then doing about a decade worth of uh, consulting for various operational and IT-based positions. She also has previously served on the board of directors for the Rental Housing Association of Washington. She has a BA in communications from the University of Washington, and she's joining us today from Seattle. So Beth, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really excited to talk to you today. We over here at Blue Lake actually contemplated uh, rolling out a debt fund. It's very tempting. I see a lot of benefits to it, a lot of opportunity for it. And it's also really complicated, you know, as we started to kind of do our due diligence into what it would take to really put that into place. So I'm super excited to hear your experience and your perspective about, um, you know, how debt funds operate and what, you know, the side of private money lending is like. Uh, but before we kind of jump into the details, do you want to just give us kind of a broad overview of how you even found yourself in this position? I think you said it perfectly, how I found myself. I know a lot of entrepreneurs and small business owners say that they had a vision, a dream. They created a plan and they just went forward on it. But that was absolutely not the path I took. Um, I call myself an accidental entrepreneur. I had actually just gone out on a, a first date with my now husband and we bonded over real estate because we both grew up in families that invested in real estate as a side hustle and connected when he was talking about wanting to start back into the private money lending world. And I knew nothing about it. And so it really just spawned from there. I said, oh, I've got some marketing and some operational experience and I can help you get this restarted. And it just kind of ballooned from there. So I didn't really plan on it. I always thought that I was going to be a W-2 
uh, high income earner and doing maybe flips um, or owning rentals on the side as my dad did as a teacher. Never thought that I'd be into a full fledged private lending business with my husband spending about 23 and a half hours a day with him um, talking about, you know, everything related to life, family and business. So um, it was very much by accident. Happy accident, I guess I should say. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say most people are lucky if they can find a life partner and uh, well, if they can find a life partner or a good business partner, but if find both in one, you know, on one shot, that's nice. Lucky Beth. <laughs> well, we're really definitely um, a prime example of how you really should take advantage of second chances. Both of us had come from previous marriages, and so we weren't actually looking for anything serious both in business and in personal life. And it just kind of evolved that way. So over the over the years, I've learned to let go of some of my controlling behaviors and natures. I think most women maybe have a challenge with and really embrace the unknown and try and see opportunity and then embellish upon it. And that's exactly what happened here. So we now have a, a very um, lively private lending business in Washington State here. We started out doing um, private money matchmaking, just matching up uh, passive investors who had capital to investment, maybe not the time or the experience to lend it out themselves. And we partnered them with borrowers who were active investors looking for uh, private capital to fund their deals. And it just kind of went from there. Very, very cool. Super interesting. And and you actually um, led right into a question that I was going to ask is who are these borrowers? And, and I'm curious to know, how are you structuring the terms for these? They're both short-term and uh, intermediate loans, correct? Correct. So predominantly our borrower base are active investors that uh, employ a number of different real estate investing strategies. It could be flippers, that are really just looking for short-term bridge loans um, that don't have the stringent underwriting requirements from a, an appraisal or um, debt to income that conventional lending uh, requires of them. And they just need to be able to close quickly turn over that property and put it back on the market. We also work with buy and hold investors, um, particularly those that have maybe a value add component. So they want to force appreciation by improving some of the units in that building or doing capital expend expenditures for deferred maintenance. And then they'll refinance out into permanent financing once it's stabilized. Um, so landlords, um, uh, property investment owners, developers, um, a number of different strategies, but pr primarily in the residential space. Interesting. Okay, cool. And, you know, one of the things that Again, you know, when we were considering or kind of vetting the idea of uh, doing this here at Blue Lake was just the amount of manpower and the type of team that we'd have, have to have in place in order to really vet borrowers eff efficiently and basically underwrite, you know, their deals and, and see, you know, if they pencil or not. So I'm curious, how do you vet the borrowers and do you actually underwrite all of their deals? Um, you know, how big of a team have you put together to help support all of this and how do you do it? When we first started out, uh, like I said, it was just born out of an idea um, floating out on the lake on a date over a bottle of wine. And we just, you know, he was talking about private money lending and he had two capital partners and each of them had a very modest amount, at least in terms of the Seattle market, how much you need to actually buy a property and flip it. But we started underwriting every single deal ourselves, And this, there's no secret sauce here. Lenders actually underwrite properties, uh, at least uh lenders that uh, lend on investment properties the same way an investor would. So we really capitalized on our experience doing flips, wholesaling, 
uh, being former landlords ourselves, we look at the deal the same way that we would as an investor as we do as a lender. Because the reality is, is you're taking a bridge loan out from us. It's usually anywhere from six to 12 months. Sometimes we may go up to 18 or 24 months for um, a, a larger project, maybe construction or a large multifamily um, stabilization project. But typically it's less than a year. And so we want to make sure that they have a strong exit strategy out of our loan, um, much like you would as an investor. If I'm going to flip a property, I need to make sure that I have a healthy enough profit um, just to say that I can clear 50K on it. Well, if I have to pay about 6% in real estate commissions and then some excise tax and closing fees on top of that, then that 50K gets diminished pretty quickly. So you need to look at the overall project financials as a lender, much like you would as an investor as well. Very interesting. Okay, uh, neat. Um, I think that's very good advice. And it's interesting because it kind of gives me some insight into how you're structuring uh, the terms. Are there any other terms that you're willing to share with us about how you structure these? Sure. Uh, you know, we really start off by looking at the project and the property itself. I will say that any hard money or private money lender out there probably has um, their own set of rules or guidelines for which they um, want to underwrite a property or a um, or a borrower. For us, we like to be fairly creative and flexible. So I don't have loan guidelines per se that I will go out and publish to the investor community. But what we're really looking at is strong project financials and a strong stable uh, market. So um, if the borrower is wanting to buy a flip then I need to know what they're obviously at a very high level purchasing it for, how much are they going to invest in rehab and who's going to be uh, putting forth that capital, whether it's them, whether it's partially funded by us or all by us. And then how much do we perceive that ARV or that after repair value afterwards? Um, less out what we expect to be closing costs, as I just mentioned, in terms of real estate commissions and such. And it's that net profit that's really important and important to us as a lender. I need to make sure that if anything goes sideways, that I have enough equity buffer to protect me, not only preservation of principal, my principal loan amount, but also the interest that's owed by the borrower as well. Um, and so it's really important for us to make sure that that property and that project pencil out. And then from there, we'll go out and vet the borrower. Now we don't care how much they make, whether they're you know high income earner, uh, income earner at a tech company out here in the Pacific Northwest, which is pretty pretty common, and doing a side hustle. That is less important to me. Um, I want to make sure that the project itself will pencil out, but I do want to make sure that in case the borrower um, has something happen on the project, that they have the experience that they need to be able to get out from a difficult situation because no flip goes untouched without some sort of chaos, right? And it's sometimes it's the borrower's fault. Oftentimes it's not, you know, you can't really help whether a sub or a GC walks off the job and messes up your project schedule and therefore you have budget overruns. Um, but we need to make sure that they can cover it. If they have W2 income to cover the um, interest payments for us, if the project were to go over, you know, over its schedule, um, we wanna make sure that they have the experience, the capital, the, um, the ability to exit out of it if they're going to refinance the property. Um, all of that means that we have to do some sort of pre-qualification to make sure that they can actually truly get refinanced after they're completed with the project. 
Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, and definitely makes sense. Uh, now, I'm curious, um, you know, from your perspective in two different ways, uh, I'd like to know what the pros and cons are of, you know, private money lending and what you would say these pros and cons are first and foremost as like a fund administrator. Um, so are you uh, assuming from uh, like a lender point of view? Correct. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. So there's a couple of primary strategies that private lenders employ. One is I'm going to be the private lender um, providing the funding for your project, Jeanette. And that in and of itself is considered like a private mortgage in some states or a private trust deed. They're essentially the same thing, but different states call them different things, either trust deeds or mortgages. And that is something that needs to be handled by a state by state. In my state, I can lend to you in a trustee and it's not necessarily deemed a security, meaning Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, doesn't necessarily get, get involved and govern those types of transactions. In other states, they can. So licensing and regulatory considerations are definitely something that a private lender needs to take into consideration before they get started at all. If you really want to lend at scale, then a pooled mortgage fund or a private debt fund is really the vehicle to use in that uh, the very nature of it allows you to take capital from a number of different sources, pool it together into one single fund, and then you lend it out that way. It gives you scale because you can also vet, uh, lend out on higher loan amounts than any one single investor may have um, or whether uh, uh, beyond the amount of capital that you may have personally. Um, and then it also allows you to be able to control the loans a little bit um, easier in that when I pool all of my investors' capital into a pooled debt fund, then I have control to do the underwriting, to put it into the uh, portfolio. If a loan is non-performing, then I can go in and manage the um, the workout of that or the foreclosure of that, if that becomes necessary. And so those that want to really create a private lending business at scale would eventually probably need to consider some sort of private debt fund model. But I will say that it does definitely um, bring in the SEC. It does uh, definitely bring in the need to um, add additional resources to your team in order to help really truly manage that fund effectively from a strategic standpoint, from a cash management uh, standpoint, accounting gets a lot more complex. Uh, the legalities of it is just really extraordinary for this person, one person here who's done private lending for nearly a decade and has just recently launched a fund um, at the beginning of last year. I was very naive to what was involved. I think a lot of people think, well, I can just set up an entity, an LLC, and I'm just going to pull all my private lenders into one so that I can just keep managing projects, you know, and, and keep turning it over that way. So I secure a lot of flippers and developers uh, entertaining that concept too. And the reality is, it's just not that simple. To really get a solid uh, fund set up requires tens of thousands of dollars. And that's just to your attorney. Beyond that are considerations of, once I throw the capital in there, how do I continually redeploy it? How do I avoid diminished returns because I have capital sitting on the sidelines and no, no loans coming in the pipeline that really qualify to lend on? then what do I do with that capital? So for someone like me and my husband, who were accidental entrepreneurs that really understood real estate and the investing space and the private lending space very well, very deeply, 
we were still missing some key components, knowledge and experience wise, to understand how to effectively manage that, to, to forecast and model out for funds coming back in, for redeploying them, bringing on new investors is probably one of the easiest things. I think there's a lot of podcasts and, and uh, blogs out there that talk about how to raise private capital. No one really tells you how to redeploy that, how to manage that cash, um, that cash flow or the cash drag in some cases too. So there's a lot more complexities in the finance side of things that um, I don't think my husband and I were necessarily really aware of, but we knew enough to know that we needed to fill in that position with somebody who had really deep experience in the fund management space. And that's what we've done. Very smart. And yes, I, I really appreciate you saying that. Uh, like I shared at the beginning of the show, we had entertained the idea also. And as we did our due diligence, we became very aware very quickly at incredibly the complexities, uh, you know, that surround that. And so I really appreciate you being uh, just transparent and sharing, you know, both the good and the challenging aspects of that. Um, now, I'd like to also hear your opinion about the same thing, but from um, an investor standpoint of the pros and the cons. But before we do, let's go ahead and hear a word from our sponsor. Ready to Scale is brought to you by Blue Lake Capital, where we hunt down the best multifamily investment opportunities that we can find and invite investors to join in with us. We target Class B value-add multifamily properties across the Sunbelt. Our CEO, Ellie Perlman, invests a substantial amount of capital into every deal. This means our interests are aligned with yours. If you're an accredited investor looking to expand your portfolio and diversify sponsors, be sure to visit us at bluelake-capital.com. Blue Lake Capital. Be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. All right. So Beth, what are the pros and cons of private money lending for uh, basically from an investor standpoint or as an investor? Because I know you also invest. So as an investor, and I want to quantify that as a passive investor who has capital that has an interest in investing in real estate, but maybe not the time um, to want to actively flip or buy and hold rentals. Um, and so that from an investor standpoint, there's two ways to invest in real estate. There's actually several, but two ways to invest in private debt, either as a whole trustee investor or an actual uh, mortgage holder, or investing as a participant or an LP in a private debt fund. From a whole trustee standpoint, the nice thing is that a lot of uh, investors like having actual control over that instrument. When I place clients' capital into a whole note or a whole trustee investment, their name or their business entity is actually named as the holder of that note. They get recorded on that trust deed with the county um, or the municipality that it needs to be recorded in um, with their name as the grantee. And so there's a lot of... Um, control and uh, ownership over that loan. Of course, we help provide that concierge service because oftentimes they don't know what to do if they don't have a payment. Um, and so we help bridge that gap of, of knowledge and experience. But a lot of our investors really like the idea of being that one named on there. And it really helped grow our capital base when we first started because there's really no way to Bernie made off this. If I'm going to align you with the loan and show you the actual legal instruments that my attorney prepared on your behalf, 
you get a chance to review it. It gets sent to a third party escrow where we ordered title on it, cleared it. We ordered property hazard insurance with your name as a, a loss payee or a mortgagee. Um, there's protection in there because you have a legal attorney that's helping prepare these for you. You have us in there as a facilitator of that loan funding. And then you have an escrow closing agent that helps transact that for you. You won't wire any money to the, uh, the closer until you've actually seen the borrower have a signing appointment set up that the signing uh, has actually occurred and been approved by our attorney then only would we authorize for the funding to take place after the, the um, trust deed was recorded with the county and recording numbers received back. There are some states where it may take up to a week afterward. In our state, it gets recorded immediately. So we're able to then have the closing agent fund it as soon as the documents are signed and notarized, reviewed by our attorney and everything is kosher. So there's a lot of uh, control and autonomy over being able to select the deal, the borrower, but it does require a lot of uh, work upfront. So no passive investment is truly passive, right? I think you know that too. And so you really need to do your legwork upfront or work with somebody like us to make sure that we're doing the proper due diligence. But even if someone like me is doing that for you and collecting all the borrower documentation, doing a full review of it, it's really incumbent upon my passive investors to take a look at it and really vet it out too. So I give them a whole package to look at. But the downside to being a trustee investor is that you aren't diversified. You maybe pick one loan and that's all of your hard-earned capital, whether you have you know, just only 50K or 100K or a couple hundred, that may go into one single loan, particularly here in a high appreciation market like Washington. And so you don't have the diversification. And when capital does come back, you may have a little bit sitting on the sidelines or all of it sitting on the sidelines for a month, for two months, depending on when you can get that next loan, especially if you're doing this by yourself. And so all of a sudden, being able to command 12% to your borrower as an interest um, rate may be diminished in your return because it's sitting on the sidelines for four, six, eight weeks, and or a portion of it is. Um, and so that is a downside to doing trustee investments. Um, you're also required to do to handle all of the um, forbearance or foreclosure, anything when the, the loan is non-performing, that's up to you to handle. Um, alternatively, the private debt fund model does allow passive investors. Most of them have to be accredited investors to invest in these private debt funds. In the whole note space, you don't necessarily need to. Um, so that's one advantage there is that sophisticated investors that may not meet that threshold for being accredited might in their market be able to invest in um, whole trustees and be a, a private lender like that, uh, where you might not be able to participate in a private debt fund. Um, so for our accredited investors uh, who invest in our private debt fund, they like it because it's a continuous deployment of capital. I invest $100,000 into the fund and every single quarter I get a distribution or every single quarter I get to reinvest and compound that investment. Um, you can't necessarily do that in private lending and whole trust deeds unless you have a really strong pipeline of borrowers um, and loans actively coming through. But I'll tell you, I, I, I close a lot less loans than I turn down um, because I just don't want to take on too much risk. Um, so that's one upside about investing in a private debt fund. But much like a syndication, you really have to vet out the manager. 
um, or management uh, company that's overseeing that fund, you need to really ask and understand questions about what kind of loans they place into that portfolio. What's their risk tolerance? Do they have things like leverage. Um, a lot of private debt funds, when they build it up, let's say I build it up to 10 million, which is considerably a fairly small uh, fund to run. But let's say I do that and I go and pledge that, those $10 million in uh, funds to a bank who then gives me um, a line of credit, a business line of credit against that fund. Now, all of a sudden, I, as a lender or a fund manager, have the ability to go and increase my loan originations, but that line of credit now takes place and priority over the fund participants. And a lot of LPs just don't really understand that. I mean, I think it's a foregone conclusion that if you're investing in a syndication, you're going to have some sort of debt ahead of you. Um, and the LPs will eventually, over some time horizon, receive some capital and some return back. In the private debt fund space, you think you're investing in a fund and they're very safely securing a predictable return for you with less uh, speculation than maybe a syndication would. But if that fund takes on leverage from a bank or a financial institution, you're now somewhat in second place. And so there are some considerations in terms of investing into a debt, a debt fund that you have to be aware of and that you have to be able to ask those questions up front as well. Um, because not all funds are created equally. But you do get that constant deployment. You do get the advantage of having um, diversification um, across a, a portfolio of loans. So if one single loan or a couple go bad, you still have the rest of the portfolio that are helping mitigate that risk. Um, and then you also get the upside potential. If you have a high equity buffer, uh, we keep our loans pretty much below 70% loan to value. So I'm keeping a 30% equity buffer there. If a loan goes into default and I'm earning 24% default interest, then that's uh, an advantage that's spread across our entire um, uh, participants in the fund. Very, very interesting, Beth. Thank you so much for being detailed about it. Um, and it, it's very intriguing and it's a very interesting model. Um, I can see a lot of benefits to it. And, um, you know, there's, of course, always some downside and risk for any investment uh, across the board. Uh, but very well explained. Uh, so, uh, you know, now out of curiosity, in the world of private equity, you know, where there's not nearly as many uh, sources of data, you know, to pull and find out, quote, what is the state of the market, you know, from a private equity standpoint. And of course, there's been a lot of information in the news about, uh, you know, all of the upcoming loans that are going to be due for a refi. And of course, people, you know, having challenges with, uh, you know, rate caps expiring and things along those lines, at least from the multifamily side. So I'm just curious, um, given your position and your experience, how often do you see defaults take place? How do you handle uh, kind of the uncertainty, particularly in this climate of where we are right now in the economy? Well, we've been very fortunate because my husband and I are excruciatingly conservative in our loan to values because we protect our clients' capital like it's our own. We've grown strictly through our mouth. So these clients, for all intents and purposes, have become like family to us because it started off with two of Matt's friends and then they told their cousin who told their friend, best friend, who told their sister-in-law. That's how we've grown. So we're very, we have a very heightened sensitivity to risk. And so while our default rate is sub 3%, um, which is fairly low and we've never lost principal, that's not always the case, especially with the way that the market and the and uh, has been trending since COVID. 
we have to be a lot more careful about defaults and how to get out of these loans. Um, I think in COVID, we saw that immediately when lenders stopped lending and projects started getting delayed. My husband and I made a very deliberate attempt to be even more conservative because, and be more careful about the exit. When the market was hot, 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 uh, you really didn't have to do a whole lot to succeed as a borrower and as a lender. And so as, whenever a flipper said that they were going to put a property on the market, even if they screwed up a little bit, we knew that the appreciation was going to help in their benefit and therefore help us. But secondarily, we always had an, like an unspoken exit strategy as a lender that because our um, loan to values were so low, if we needed to, we could always refinance them out into another hard money lender, or we could finance them into with a private lender that did debt service coverage loans, so DSCR loans, long-term rental loan programs. Um, and that was something that we really had to take uh, consideration because refinancing changed drastically after COVID. I think you saw um, back then a lot of banks were requiring some significant capital reserves up front that we did not see prior to March, 2020. I saw some conventional lenders charge, uh, requiring a minimum of six months cash reserves in your account um, as a qualification. I saw it go up to at least 12 months. Commercially, it was a little bit more than that. And so it's kind of, uh, well, at least like in the a residential space, it's kind of a catch 22 because if I need a cash out refinance, but you're requiring 12 months of cash reserves from me, if I had that cash, I probably wouldn't be going and trying to get a takeout, um, you know, cash out refinance. And so that was some consideration that we had to take in, um, back then. And it's something that we're still having to take into consideration now. Cash reserves are somewhat common and people and investors are used to that, but I don't think that they're used to the higher interest rates as coupled with more stringent lending guidelines. And then just the contraction in the lender uh, industry where a lot of lenders are folding because they aren't able to recapitalize and that liquidity is not there for them anymore. So they're having to fold because the ability for a lender like myself to maybe sell out a loan out of my portfolio and then to be able to fund new loans with that um, recapitalization, it doesn't exist at, at scale like it used to. So we're extremely careful now to make sure that we're taking uh, lower loan to values, particularly in the commercial world. Regional banks have a direct tie into being able to get a commercial refinance. The lack of liquidity there uh, and with First Republic and Silicon Valley, that's kind of lit a, a yellow flag here that a lot of commercial lending is just going to get tougher and tougher as the months go on. Um, because most regional banks are worried more about their depository accounts than they are about lending. And so mm -hmm. that's going to make it even tougher. So we're a little bit more careful with commercial assets than we used to be because we're seeing that loan to value drop from what was typically around 70% or a 1.25 debt service coverage, uh, meaning you had to have 125% of net income to cover your debt um, on, the, on the property. We're seeing it go up to about 1.5 in some instances too. And that the LTV dropped down to, to anywhere from the 50s to the low 60s. And that directly impacts us because if a borrower can't get out of that loan, then we're stuck. And then they're stuck too, holding a high interest bridge loan that they did, didn't necessarily account for long range. 
Yeah, excellent point. Excellent point. And really good insights, um, you know, into what we're dealing with uh, in the market for sure. I, I know definitely that from the commercial standpoint, uh, lender requirements have definitely become even more stringent than they were before. Uh, you know, in some ways, I would say that that's a, a benefit and an advantage uh, because it eliminates simply the number of groups that are even qualifying. Uh, but of course, it's also more challenging because now we've got to bring more equity to the table, um, you know, as we're, we're, you know, acquiring new properties. Um, well, very interesting. So uh, is there any else, anything else that you'd like to share with us that you think is just really important for any investors that are considering getting involved in, uh, you know, in either debt funds or private money lending? I would say do your homework. Um, I think a lot of people just assume that they can find themselves an expert and they can have a conversation or hear a blog or hear a podcast or a blog and assume that they know definitively that that person is going to safeguard their capital. But no two investors are the same. Their goals aren't the same. What lets them sleep well at night is not the same. So while you might have a strong comfort level or, you know, your spidey senses say like, I, I really like you and you seem trustworthy. You still have to go that next step and really vet out who that operator is, whether someone's going to place capital for you, um, either in a pooled debt fund or as a trustee and investor, you need to still have an, a better understanding of what it is that would make you sleep well, what's your risk tolerance, uh, what's your liquidity requirements, how much capital do you have to invest, do you meet those requirements. Um, I wrote a book about it, and that was published on Bigger Pockets last year about how to do private money lending. Um, whether you invest in a debt fund or trustees, it really gives you all of the key considerations, because I just can't go and tell you, hey, you should do it this way, this way, and this way. You should have 70% loan to value or less. You should only do first trust deeds. Um, you can only do it in these markets. You need to check for X, Y, and Z. You're going to have to be able to come to terms with what feels good to you. And oftentimes for us, we'll uh, make sure that that interest rate is commensurate with the level of risk. So I might offer a 12% loan on something that is perceived to be a little bit higher risk. And I've got investors that won't get out of bed for anything less than 10%. They want that increased risk for that increased return. But I also have older clients who um, sold their portfolio, their rental portfolio, and just want to invest passively through us through retirement. They don't want that risk. They're investing with me because they don't want to put it in the stock market because they got burned in 08. They don't think they're going to live long enough to see the next downturn, um, you know, get recycled. So I have to be able to get them something that's really excruciatingly conservative, but they may accept a lower interest rate for that. And those are considerations that every individual has to take on their own with their partner uh, their spouse to make sure that they're really addressing what their needs are up front before they go down the path of choosing someone to work with either as a private debt fund uh, manager syndications or um, whole trustees, how liquid you need that capital would, you know, you might want to invest in trustees versus doing um, a debt fund or a syndication. You need tax advantages. You probably want to go to a syndication because you don't get that in um, interest income. So there's a lot of considerations that individuals have to take by themselves. And that's what we help try and uncover in the book. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. All right. Well, Beth, this has all been very interesting, but we also like to quote, keep it real a little bit and learn just a little bit more about you. So are you ready for what I call our lightning round questions? I am. 
All right. Great. So first of all, what do you actually just do for fun? What's a hobby for you? <laughs> um, well, on paper and in my bios, when I do presentations, I'll say that I like to run and cook and travel. Um, and then I play poker on the side with my husband. Uh, in reality, when you run a small business, there is not, I mean, fun to me is like getting on a plane and drilling out some content or listening to a, a business related book because I'm so desperate to figure out how to sustain and, and scale and systematize. Um, so that's kind of my idea of fun is listening to podcasts, but I do love running and cooking, um, spending time with my kids. And so, <laughs> oh, and yep. singing, I guess I should say, I love singing. Ah, nice. Okay, good. Uh, maybe you should have saved that one because my next question is, what is something that most people don't know about you? Oh, goodness. Um, I'm pretty much an open book, uh, willing to share everything that I've done right and most of the things that I've done wrong. <laughs> um, but I think what people don't know about me is that I well, I did sing in a band for the first time in my life. It's been a lifelong dream of mine. I don't want to be like some rock star. I'm too old for that um, and really don't have the energy to put into it. But it was always my dream to sing like in a lounge or with a, uh, a live band. And so my CPA, who's become a dear friend of mine, is a drummer in um, a rock cover band. And so locally, he allowed me to come and participate in band practice, which in and of itself was just lovely and exactly what I needed for a de-stressor. And then they um, were happy enough singing a couple songs with me that they invited me to sing at, at one of their performances locally at a, at a band or a bar. How nice. That's great. I think, hey, it's never too old to just have a good time and still explore other interests, right? It doesn't have to be a career path. That's good. Good for you. Um, all right. Now, I know you mentioned that you actually wrote a book last year and it's called, what is your book called? Go ahead and put a plug in for it here. Lend to Live. Said it's, here it is. It's uh, available on Bigger Pockets. It's called Lend to Live, Earn Hassle-Free Passive Income in Real Estate with Private Money Lending. Uh, and it is your how-to guide on how to find and fund uh, a private money loan as a safe and secured investment vehicle. Excellent. So I assume that that is a book you would recommend. But in addition to that, um, is there any other book that you would really encourage investors to make sure that they're incorporating in their library? You know, I just had um, three close friends whose daughters graduated from high school. And as they go and explore careers and uh, uh, and study in college for engineering and IT. I really wanted to give them a set of books that helped them grow beyond what they teach in the classroom. Because um, most professors don't necessarily run businesses. I wanted them to understand how to invest because getting that job is just the first step, making the money, but then understanding how to save and then invest that money. That's the ticket to figuring out how to really create and fund the lifestyle that you want. And so I gave those 18-year-olds uh, the um, rich dad, poor dad, obviously, to understand that really doing it by the books and safely with the W-2 isn't necessarily going to get you as far as you want to. Um, I gave them cash flow quadrant because I really wanted them to understand, also by Robert Kiyosaki, the different um, steps it takes from being an, empl an employee to being a solopreneur, uh, the complications and the active business that comes with being a business owner, but what it really means to be an investor and have passive cash flow as an investor. And so I gave them that book as well. And then I rounded it out with one of my personal favorites, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F by Mark Manson. <laughs> 
Um, I absolutely adore that book. Uh, it, I think that it gives a lot of insight into how to um, really align your values with your priorities uh, and also really define what matters most to you. I think it's like the modern day uh, provocative approach to don't sweat the small things <laughs> <laughs> and really helps you figure out like, you know, anyone can talk about what it is they want most out of life. Like I want to go travel more. I want to be able to sing more with the band or whatever. And we don't really often talk about what it is that we're what's worth struggling for. And that's the biggest question to solve for ourselves. And so those are the three books that I've packaged up and given to some friends lately. That's awesome. I'm actually also a very big fan of that book as well. Um, I've read several of his books, actually. Uh, so I, I, I love that. Um, and this might make the next question a little bit more challenging for you, or it's a great segue directly into it. Uh, but basically, one of the things that we talk about you know, here at Blue Lake is, yes, of course, you know, we all want to make money. Of course, we want to grow wealth and we want to be successful, um, you know, as a company, all of our investors, we want to see them succeed. But the the ultimate aim is really to live and build, you know, to build and live extraordinary lives. So, you know, what advice would you give to people that are really intent on building extraordinary lives for themselves? Well, I think it would be going back to really truly understanding what your why is. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of really ambitious, successful people that are tenacious and persistent, we can do a lot of things. It's truly really figuring out, do you really want to do those things? And what are you going to get out of it? Uh, versus what might you be taking on just because it may be purely ego-driven, um, and you don't even know it. It's subconscious, right? You're like, oh, well, I'm going to go start a podcast. And because I have things that I can evangelize and get out. And, but really, do you want to? Are you afraid to be? I, I'm totally afraid to be in front of <laughs> a video. I don't love it. Um, so I've had to come to terms over the years of figuring out what it is that really drives me. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, my husband and I got into this business of private lending because we didn't want to be stuck in W-2s as single parents. We wanted to have that flexibility to be there for him. Well, wouldn't you know, the market, real estate market takes off, our business starts booming. And I went from being a part-time consultant um, in tech at Microsoft to running a full-fledged business. And now all of a sudden, instead of working 25 hours a week, I'm working 50 and it's a wonderful, great opportunity. And it, and it feeds like, you know, this professional um, drive that I have. But at the end of the day, I don't personally identify myself with my professional endeavors. I really, truly consider myself a mom, uh, a wife, as cliche as all that sounds. I don't care to be, you know, the best, next, hottest thing out there in real estate. And I have to learn how to shut out all of those uh, headlines out there that says this person, you know, made 10 figures in 10 months or built up their portfolio to a thousand doors. That doesn't matter to me. It might matter to somebody else, but I think it's really important to understand what it is that you're trying to get out of it. Cause money isn't the salt, you know, isn't the solution. Money helps be the, the conduit to leading the life that you want to live. And so I just really want to spend a lot more time with my husband. He's 10 years older than me. And so in our late forties and late fifties, we want to be able to spend more time with each other and not try and build up this business to something that's huge and beyond our control. Um, we want to just carve out a little small space for ourselves. And that was some 
personal reflection and realization that we've had to do in the last couple of years. Very insightful. Really appreciate you sharing that. Uh, very good counsel there. All right. Well, and last but not least, uh, Beth, if people want to find you, how can they do that? Uh, you can find me, uh, you can check out my our, uh, company websites, flynnfamilylending.com uh, or lendtolive.com, lend, the number two, live.com. I'm also on Instagram at lendtolive.beth. Uh, and you can find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook, uh, Beth Pinkley Johnson. Perfect. All right. And we'll be sure to include uh, links to all of that in our show notes. Uh, Beth, this has been great. Uh, it's been both informative, educational, insightful. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you uh, very much for taking time to come on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, absolutely. And for those of you that tuned in, we appreciate you and your time. Please don't forget to like, rate, and review the show. Leave us some comments and let us know more about what you'd like to hear about. And in the meantime, be bold, be great, and keep moving forward. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.